Our scripture reading today is Matthew 2, chapters one, or verses 1 through 12, which can be found on page 807 of your pew Bibles. Let us pray. Dear God, as we read your word today, please open our eyes to see the truth you wish to show us. Please remove any distracting thoughts and help us to focus on you. Amen. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So over the past uh, couple of weeks, Scott has taken us through the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. He's worked us through the genealogy of Christ, uh, through the birth narrative, and that brings us to where we're at today with the visit of the wise men. I was uh, preparing for this message, and what struck me most about the Christmas story is, is that it doesn't take long. In fact, it only takes one chapter before uh, to see that Man is asked with a question that we are, we are faced with a question. Christmas has come, and it's been a good celebration. We've had probably one of the best here, I think, that I've ever experienced. It's come, but now it's over, and we're here, and we're left with the question of what to do with Jesus, just like our text. Tomorrow is a new year. For many, it's a time of, of New Year's resolutions. I don't make New Year's resolutions mainly because I've never kept one. I can, uh, I can remember uh, in the past starting out thinking, okay, I'm going to exercise more. Baker will help you break that one real quick, spend a little time with him. Uh, I'm going to exercise more. I'm going to eat right. I'm going to do this or not do that. I just never seem to get very far into the, the year before I don't do it. So I don't make resolutions, but one thing I find helpful at the end of the year is to take a moment and reflect and really reflect on my Christian walk, because just like Christmas, 2023 has come and gone, and here we are left with a question, what did, what did we do with Christ? What have I done with Christ? So I want to take just a minute this morning and look at three people or groups of people in our passage. I want to see how they responded to Christ, and maybe we can see something and take it away and maybe help us a little bit. We'll look at King Herod, 
uh, the chief priests and scribes, and then finally the wise men. We'll begin with Herod. Herod, known here as Herod the Great, was the first of many Herods in the New Testament. He's father of Herod Antipas of John the Baptist fame. He was not a Jew. He was an Edomite. So that means he was placed in the kingship of Israel, not the rightful heir. What you might not know about Herod, and I didn't until I started digging in, is that he actually did some good things for Israel. Just a few examples. He, during hard economic times, he would take tax money and give it back to the citizens to help ease their suffering. Uh, there was a famine in B.C. 25 where he took gold objects out of the palace and melted them down to buy food for the poor. He built theaters and racetracks and other structures of entertainment for the people of Israel. And in 19 B.C., he began to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. So he did do some pretty good things. But despite all of that, he was known as a cruel and ruthless king because he was not a Jew uh, and not the rightful king of Israel. He was always jealous and suspicious of anyone who might try to take his throne. So much so that he killed his brother-in-law, his wife, one of his wives, and three of his own sons. To help us see just a little bit more about what kind of man Herod was, right before his death, he had some of the um, upper-class citizens' men in, in Jerusalem arrested because he knew no one would cry at his funeral. He ordered these men to be executed at the very moment of his death so there would be sure to be crying in Jerusalem that day. Caesar Augustus was a personal friend of Herod's, and he said he'd rather be Herod's pig than a son. So anyone who posed a threat to Herod or who Herod thought might be a, a threat was in real danger. So you can kind of see why he acted the way he did when the wise man came and started declaring that there was a new king of the Jews that had been born. In fact, our text says he was troubled in all of Jerusalem with him. All of Jerusalem with him. They must have known just what Herod was capable of. So the whole city was in an uproar. So he begins to plot. He calls in the chief priests and scribes to find out where this child was to be born. They tell him. And then he hypocritically sends the wise man to go find this child and send word back so that he too might go and worship him as well. So as Hillary read, we know the plot doesn't work. The wise men were warned and they head off in a different direction. But out of rage, and we did not read this, out of rage of being tricked by the wise man, Herod orders the murder of many innocent children. It's historically known as the slaughter of innocents, and you can find it just a few verses past our text today in verses 16 through 18. So you see, it's not hard to tell that Herod was a very wicked and godless man. But something I want us to think about is when it comes to Jesus, what was Herod's greatest sin? What was it that kept him from seeking, finding, and worshiping this new king of Israel. The things that come to my mind are hatred and jealousy and murder. We just all, we mentioned all of them just a second ago. 
But there's something deeper than the obvious sins, and I believe that is the sin of Herod's unbelief. When you look at the book of Romans, Paul lays out the gospel from front to back. He spends the first two and a half chapters talking about man's fallen state apart from God. He moves into justification by faith and sanctification and then into the Christian life and so on. But it's interesting that when Paul talks about the fallen state of man, he doesn't rush into individual sins. The list is there. All you have to do is go to the end of chapter 1. Envy, murder, covetousness, gossip, sexual immorality, they're all there. But before the list, he shows us what's at the core of our sinful actions. Chapter 1, verse 21, he writes, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And this is the point I want us to get out of this text. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Herod was not a Jew, but he knew about the God of Israel. He knew about the Christ. He asked the the chief priests and scribes to come in and tell him where he was. He was rebuilding the temple. He had every chance to find and to receive this new king of Israel. But Herod could not see God because he refused to believe. Just like Paul said, he exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And this is a reality I want us to think about. There will be many repentant murderers in heaven, and there will be many people who were filled with hate and jealousy in eternity with Christ. Herod's sins were great, and they were many. But at the end of the day, he rejected the Savior and exalted himself. We all sin. So it's not so much as what we do, but what we do with Christ. So I'll quickly return back to our initial question. What have you done with Christ? So Herod, scrambling to find this new child calls in the chief priests and scribes. Now, this little group, they don't get much real estate in our text. They're mentioned one time. So you might ask why we're even talking about them. I thought the same thing until I started to dig in. And I think they're worth mentioning because of what's not said about them. We hear about them all through the Bible. They're the religious elite of the New Testament that Jesus deals with constantly. So since we're familiar with them, I don't want to dig into each individual office necessarily, but summarize what each group stands for, and that is the chief priest representing Jewish worship and the scribes representing Jewish law. So together what we have is the whole of Judaism, and it makes sense that Herod, hearing about a Messiah, would call these men to himself to find out where he was to be born. They come and they point to the Old Testament, to Micah chapter 5. Now, we've read that passage several times over the last few weeks. Here, Matthew paraphrases it, so I'll read it again. And you, 
O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And this is the point about these men. They knew exactly where to go in Scripture, and they knew exactly who Micah was talking about. If there was anyone in Israel who should have been excited, overly excited, about the long-awaited Messiah finally coming, it should have been these men. And what was their reaction? Nothing. It seems as though they were indifferent. And I think about these men, and I think it's the easiest thing in the world to wear the name of Christ. They did it. They wore the name of God. And 13 chapters later, Jesus is addressing this same group. Different faces, because it's about 30 years later, but the same group. And he says, they honor God with their lips, but their heart is far from him. I think our society is teaching us the same thing. It's okay to call yourself a Christian. Do that. But here's what's really important. Here's where you need to focus your time and effort. You, self-fulfillment. Matter of fact, fill in that blank, whatever it looks like, anything but Christ. As I work through these things, Nick and I talk about this pretty regular. We hear these words to ourselves before we get to talk them, you know, tell anybody else. And uh, this group of men really hit me the hardest because I see myself in them more than maybe Herod. It, it caused me to remember a quote from an old Puritan uh, theologian, Stephen Charnock. He wrote an essay on practical atheism. I didn't even know what that was until I read this. He says this, Those therefore are more deservedly termed atheists who acknowledge God and walk as if there were none. Read it again. Those therefore are more deservedly termed atheists who acknowledge God and walk as if there were none. Our Lord speaks to us concerning this issue. In Revelation chapter 3, he's writing to the church at Laodicea. And I do not want to pass over that little note very quick. He's writing to a church. He says, I know your works. You're neither hot, neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. What Jesus describes here is the epitome of indifference. And again, he's speaking to Christians. The promised Messiah came, and the chief priests and scribes, the ones who should have cared the most, could have cared less. So I want us to ask ourselves today, what place does Jesus hold in our lives? Is he in the forefront of our hearts and minds, or do we treat him with indifference? We'll finally come to the wise men. We don't know much about this group. Most of what we get uh, in our hymns and in our nativity scenes come from the Middle Ages, and that they were kings is one thing, and that uh, the number of them was three, and that's mainly based on their gifts. Clifton put a little thing in the bulletin about that, so you might want to read. That's pretty good. 
Uh, during this time, the Middle Ages, that is, they were given names. They were given names of Caspar, Balthazar, and Melchior. One legend has taught that they were even uh, meant to represent the sons of Noah. As I was reading, there's a lot of speculation about where these men came from. Uh, commentators uh, have mentioned Babylon, Persia, Egypt, and the Arabian Desert. Uh, I think there is a, a couple things that point to Babylon I do want to point out just very quickly. Uh, the word that is translated into wise men is Magi. And in Daniel chapter 2, we learn that the Magi were among the highest-ranking officials in Babylon. So maybe it is that these men had some Babylonian influence. Um, it might explain, if you think about Daniel, that that is during the Jewish exile to Babylon. It might explain how these men had some uh, information about the God of Israel. doesn't really matter. Regardless, Matthew is very clear and there's no reason to speculate. These were wise men from the east, and they followed a star. They were Gentiles with some amount of wealth based on the gifts that they gave, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They had some knowledge of astrology. They followed a star. And uh, the main thing is that God revealed himself to them and drew, drew them to Christ. And this is what jumps out to me. I think if you want to try to find a central theme to this entire little story is that these men had faith. They believed uh, in Christ when they had not even seen him. They believed in him when, he was, when they saw him as a child. And think about it, he didn't, that we know of, do any miracles that would convince them of who he was. He didn't give any amazing sermons like he does beginning in chapter 5 of Matthew to persuade them that he was the Christ. And to our knowledge, they didn't see any sign of greatness or divinity that would have left them in awe of who he was. Nothing, just a boy. Two, uh, well, it was just last week, Christmas Eve. In Sunday school, Nick gave us a Christmas message, and it was, it was a good one. And he took us to... Uh, really, to me, to an unexpected passage. Uh, he took us to Philippians chapter 2, and this is what he read. He said, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the, point, to the point of death, even death on the cross. And I don't know if you see it, but I see some irony in this story. These wise men left their country looking for a king, and this king left heaven looking for them. They did not see him. We know who he is. We know what he came to do. And he did it, and he did it for us, so that we might have eternal life, so that we might be reconciled to the Father. They didn't see what we see, and they fell down and worshiped and gave gifts. So the question for us is, what is our response to him, and what do we give him? Now, as I mentioned earlier, as a new year is coming, 
and some of us uh, are making New Year's resolutions, this could very easily turn into one of those New Year's resolutions of, well, I'm going to do better. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do more, read my Bible more, pray more, come to church more. Don't get me wrong. Those are critical aspects of what it means to be a Christian. Those are critical aspects of, of your Christian walk. But it's not doing more. And if it's not doing more, then what is it? Toward the end of Mark chapter 8, Jesus is addressing a group of people. And he's showing them or telling them what it looks like to be a disciple. And this is the picture he paints. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And I want us to pay attention very closely to the words that Jesus uses here. Deny, follow, lose. These things do not happen by trying harder. They happen when we, just like the wise men, believe. We trust in what Christ accomplished on the cross for us, and we live out our lives in loving obedience. This is what it looks like to trust Christ. We take up our cross because he took up his. And we lose our lives for him because he gave his life for us. So in our text, three groups of people were faced with one question, what to do with Jesus. We have that same question before us. And in the year to come, what will we do with Christ? Amen. Let us stand and state what we believe in the Apostles' Creed.